This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane, and we are going to give you an hour of science now on Triple R. A big thank you to the team from Radiotherapy for bringing us through on the penultimate show for everyone this on the uh, Sunday morning grid. But in the studio with me, I have three of my favorite co-hosts. Mind you, I do say that regardless of who's in the room. <laughs> hey, safety when you're in the studio. Uh, we have a, a woman who basically every time she looks at you is pretty much giving you an eye exam. Dr. Lauren, welcome. <laughs> Good morning, Dr. Shane. Good I was wondering you. what you were going to say then. <laughs> well, I just thought, you know, <laughs> sort of think some things up, you know, make it a bit more uh, hilarious in the last di- dying it. days of the, the year. Um, a man whose uh, mastery of uh, all things martial arts rivals <laughs> even the amazing uh, Master King. Indeed. Yes. Thank you, Shane. And folks, if you don't know who Master <laughs> Ken is, get on YouTube and, and have a look and you'll see what I'm talking about. Um, and for those of you who are a little bit more sensitive, uh, this is a trigger warning and go to your safe rooms because Chris KP's in the studio. Gee, it's been a long time. That's <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. Um, yeah, yeah, people do get triggered off by you, don't they? <laughs> Yeah, sometimes, but um, but you can develop an immune response. Oh, over time? <laughs> yeah. 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 So, if you have. Well, yeah, a little bit get, each day. Can you get vaccinated against Chris KP? Is that possible yet? I can <laughs> work on that. We, we maybe, talked maybe about those. Yeah. 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 Are you talking about the fecal transplant tablets? <laughs> yeah. Are you volunteering? <laughs> <laughs> Disgusting Why stuff. Not? Liv's doing a Twitter feed. If you want to follow us on Twitter, folks, it is Einstein underscore a go-go. I think the underscore is before it was cool. Um, we were in early what can I say (laughs) anyway we've got some science news coming your way now Dr Lauren what do you got for us well I um, found a story this week which I then said to my husband this is why I should buy more jewellery this is the reason okay (laughs) so the reason is they've just found a dinosaur um, fossil in a piece of amber in a jewellery market in um, Myanmar and so it's very cool actually so um, obviously amber is one of the the most common places to find some of these uh, fossilised and preserved pieces of dinosaur but the cool thing with this particular one which was was literally bought it was a piece of jewelry that was bought in 2015 and they found the tail of a 99 million year old dinosaur and it actually has the bones soft tissue and feathers and Ooh. it's the first time that they've all been found together so we d- already knew that some dinosaurs had feathers and that they weren't able to fly but the feathers may have had other other causes mm. other other reasons but this is the first time that they've actually all been found together in a piece of amber. Uh, and so the, the sample, yeah, is, you know, 99 million years old. It's from the mid-Cretaceous uh, period. And it was about 1.4 inches long. And it, so it's actually, um, the feathers they can tell were chestnut brown with white undersides. So it was, it was a very mm. well-preserved sample. And I thought it was really interesting because I immediately went, well, you know, how can you be 100% sure that it was not a bird, you know? And so apparently the reason is that it has an articulated tail and birds do not. So they could differentiate the two because of that right. reason. Right. But um, yeah, imagine finding that when you just went to buy a necklace. 
than you are. Oh, hang on. Hailing <laughs> one... Teller just to go to more markets. Yeah, yeah. totally. It, it is interesting, though, how you then trace back where it was found and so forth. Because I know yeah. I've got, so I've got a, an old, I've got a lot of rocks. I collect rocks, you know, and, yep. and I've got some that are fossilized, you yeah. know, some, some stuff. And because they came from a distant uncle or an uncle of my father's, mm. I have no idea no, where he actually, oh, wow. he's long since dead. Yeah. So, you know, like yep. if you, if, if one of them one day, you know, archaeologists out there, you know, paleontologists, if you yeah. want to come over, look, please do. Yeah. Um, but you know, <laughs> if, if we were trying to work out the location of that, yeah. well, I know it's probably knowing him, he was a bit of an opal sort of mining kind of guy. So it's probably around Cooper Pedy somewhere, mm-hmm. but beyond that, you know, good luck. Yeah, um, yeah. You have to find another way to, to locate it relative to, to the actual material. So. Well, I actually got, I actually went completely off topic with the science reading with this story, actually, because then I started reading about there's, there's a lot of internal conflict in the country, obviously. Mm. And they were saying that's one of the big issues. Mm. You know, all of these samples that are being collected and are being sold for, for jewelry and things, yeah. they, they are not really able to track where a lot of it came from. Mm. But they are um, very positive because apparently a lot of the internal conflict within the country is actually reducing and mm. there's some hope of peace in the near future and they think that then they'll be able to get more scientists in into the country and you know Have maybe look. preserve some of this a little bit better i didn't get the connection between you and getting your husband to buy more jewelry but <laughs> great story because i may find oh you may find well not yeah. only that you have to travel right yeah well, you have to true. go overseas to these markets this is very true yeah, yeah it's I, a like, win-win. I like this yeah. I like <laughs> <what I'm laughs> I'm, I'm just thinking yeah yeah you run of the mill you know jewelry store in the in the local mall probably yeah. isn't going to cut it probably yeah. not the big no. market won't work no every time I want to buy something, I have to go overseas. From so, Miss, Mr. Lauren, if you're listening, no, you don't have to go down <laughs> to the local jewellery store. It's not going to work. Dr. Ewan, what do you got for us? Well, I figured, you know, we're going to come in towards the end of the year. It's time for a lighthearted story. So, bottoms. Oh. So, there was a story that caught my oh. attention this week. <laughs> and uh, in Plus One, and it's about chimpanzees and about well, bottom recognition rather than facial mm, recognition. Yeah. So social species, you know, understanding and recognising individuals is really, really important. Mm. Um, facial expressions convey a whole range of messages, health, the mood that an individual's in, reproductive state. Mm-hmm. Um, that's why things like lipstick are used. Um, you know, that's one of the reasons why red lipstick is attractive because it <laughs> signals. I thought you were sorry. I thought you were still talking about chimpanzees, and I was like, really? We're getting there. I'm sure chimps. I'm sure chimps can use lipstick. I'm sure they can too. <laughs> so, <laughs> sorry. So anyway, this study wanted to look at um, behinds because bottoms to chimpanzees convey a lot of information. Ooh, yeah. So I'm not sure how many people have heard of the inversion effect. But so humans look at facial features on a face, but if you invert it, we can't mm. actually recognise that individual as easily. So right. the configuration is really important, mm. and that explains how we can look at people and, and understand various things that are really important to know. And so they did this test with chimpanzees um, and humans where they took um, faces but also bottoms, mm. photos of bottoms and faces, as well as a foot, you know, for a control, of course, <laughs> and then inverted them. And then... <laughs> Quite a long bottom. Unless you're into feet, which some people might be. But uh, anyway, they inverted them. And sure enough, what they found was that chimpanzees um, show the ability to discern, or they have this inversion effect that only relates to bottoms, whereas humans, it's the opposite, it's faces. And so it's really interesting because what it actually suggests is that there's been this evolutionary shift, and obviously we're closely related to chimpanzees. There's an evolutionary shift from understanding and and being able to discern bottom features to facial features um, Mm -hmm. for humans. And when you think about chimpanzees walking around, you know, they're on the, obviously on all mm. four limbs. Butts up. And they're looking at butts mm. all the time. Yeah. Where, of yeah. course, we're vertical and we're looking at faces. So this could have been actually a really important way, mm. you know, in this sort of evolutionary development of, uh, of developing that ability to recognise things. Mm. And so it's a pretty interesting kind of... Uh, 
study, I think, and I thought it was also kind of amusing because they talk about all the similarities between butts and faces. You know, they're both hairless, <laughs> they're both symmetrical, they're both attractive, depending on what butt you might be looking at, <laughs> what face you might be looking at, in fact. So I thought it was a pretty cool study. Yeah. <laughs> and for some people, crap comes out of both. <laughs> That's a nice segue. <laughs> That's an exquisite segue. Like I've got to say that as soon as, as, soon as you said that, that the, yeah, the similarities, I, I was immediately reminded that you have a beard. <laughs> there's there's I no mean, judgment you, here at all. You, you, know, you, you have, if there's one thing that has defined you on this show, it has been the ongoing, yes, a, a yes, many-year-long yes. discussion of chicken orifices. So yes. you, you really can't run to your safe room, Chris. No, no, no. Well, I, you know, I, I don't know if it's possible. I don't know if chickens recognise each other by their cloacy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, it be interesting to see about dogs. Yes. Because they be. don't just reckon, they go and say hello to them. Yeah, yeah they oh, sniff yeah. as well. It's all yeah. about the smell of dog. I, yeah. I recognise you. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I'm, I'm not doing that experiment. <laughs> I think it's worth noting that this is an excellent, excellent story for radio. Yeah. <laughs> or, or, or a nudist speech. Yeah. <laughs> mm. You've changed. Um, <laughs> It's towards the end of the year, Chris. Something's got to give. Well, yeah, that's exactly right. Look, I I wanted to uh, I wanted to go back in time, um, if if I may, because and this is this is actually cool on so many levels. There's an archaeological dig going on in what uh, what is now Germany, uh, and they found these ceramic pots, which is not uncommon where there've been people living. Mm. Um, I don't know. It's not clear from what I've read why they did what they did, but they essentially wanted to know what was inside these, and so they get some fragments and they break them all up and they clean them with detergents and whatever they they managed to ascertain that there was biological material inside them, mm-hmm. which is in itself not that surprising either. I mean, you may have a flower jar at home or a cookie jar or, yep, or, or you know, or somebody's ashes. Um, and what they found was, in fact, yes, there was there was human bits inside this, this pot, which is interesting in itself. But that it's not just that there's that. They can actually examine the proteins, which means they can start telling you not just that it's human, but which bits of the human. Mm. Um, and they found that this pot, all these pots, um, had been buried somewhere with the presumably the person who owned them, um, with a whole lot of this person's blood uh, and also various organs. Um, and then things got much weirder, because not only did they find these traces of... Because what happens, you stick this stuff in a jar and it basically goes off, and what's left is sort of this film of, of matter, which is mainly proteins. So it's human. But then they also found um, evidence of proteins that are associated with Crimean Congo hemorrhagic fever virus. Ooh, okay. Now, for those of you playing along at home, anything with the title hemorrhagic in it mm. is less than cool. Mm. Um, you know, so if someone's advertising, you know, a street party on Facebook, you know, <laughs> and, they, and I say it's going to be totes hemorrhagic, don't go. <laughs> Anyway, so um, what's weird about this is that, firstly, we don't know whether this is because this disease was rampant in this area or whether this particular person had been travelling somewhere where it was or what's going on. Basically, this is a human being, and for whatever reason, they said, this guy's not well, we need to keep his stuff <laughs> with him or just keep a sample of it for future reference. I don't know, but they found it now. Mm. What's also interesting from a, from a scientific point of view is that this wasn't possible that long ago. In the part, you know, not long ago, in our lifetimes, this was not a thing where you could quickly analyse proteins. Now that we can, it's actually a really good thing because proteins actually are much more stable and much less likely to get broken up than what we usually use to, to identify viruses, which would be their DNA or their RNA. Mm. Um, RNA, DNA, the nucleic acids of that sort uh, get, get broken down quite quickly, especially over long periods of time. So this this 
earthenware, which is at least 450 years, you know, um, before now, has still got proteins in it, which we can clearly identify. Mm. Uh, and what the what these archaeologists now are looking for, or what the, the cell biologists are now looking for, is someone else's lab to confirm that what they found is what they found. Mm. But at the moment, it looks like something that you would never have imagined, history would not have suggested, but modern technology is telling us is real. Mm. It's cool stuff, very cool mm. stuff. Well, I... Uh, I don't have any news today. Well, one piece I wanted to mention, but after, you know, Dr. Ewan sent me <laughs> the fact that he, he grabbed the bottom story, uh, I figured, you know, what's, there's nothing real. I think you misunderstood. He just, said he, grabbed, he just grabbed the bottom. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's all misunderstanding. That could, that could have been it, actually. Um, jokes. But no, I, I, I did want to mention there, there was a, there was a piece of very sad news this week, and you've probably already seen this in, in the media, folks. Um, but if you haven't, um, John Glenn, the first American to orbit the Earth, um, died this week yeah. at the huge age of 95. Which I have to say, for a test pilot, it's pretty yeah. good. It's pretty good. <laughs> He's um, an outlier. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but he was also the. Yeah, well, he also holds well held until this week um, the record as the oldest human being to go into space. So he mm. went um, up on the mm. space shuttle at I think the ripe old age of seventy seven. Wow. And um, and they they did that because they were able to test changes in his biology as a result of space travel at the age of 30 or yeah, whatever yeah. it was mm. and at 77 and see how his body reacted differently at mm. different ages. So it was kind of a good control yeah. um, with the one human being to be able to do that so far apart. But he, he's, he's one of those, you know, what I call sort of old world heroes, you know, where mm. for, for the, the sheer sake of exploration yeah. was willing to, you know, back then, you know, OH, OH and what? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just just put his life on the line. Yeah. You know, all these guys did. They put their lives in the hands of engineers. But but most of them at the time, you know, the original Mercury astronauts and so forth, I mean, these guys were they were intellectual giants as well. I mean, they all went on. They had engineering degrees. Mm. They had physics degrees. They were, they were amazing, amazing people. And, look, they were all men back then, and there was a, there was a lot of, you know, and we had uh, Amy Shiratawa talk, talk yeah. about the, the women group that never ended up doing the actual mm. missions. Mm. But um, but these these particular blokes were, were pretty pretty amazing and did did that first real frontier stuff into space, mm. which was pretty dangerous. And um, anyway, it was, it was very sad to see John Glenn, um, who of course I think for some twenty odd years has been a senator in the US as well. So he hasn't. He's had quite a diverse yeah, career. He's been busy. Um, he's been busy. Anyway, we lost him this week at the age of ninety five. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, we're going to be speaking to Julian Cripp, who's got a, a new book out. Um, which is all about possibilities for uh, the future called Surviving the 21st Century. Um, I'm not sure if it's a sort of like guidebook. Um, it's certainly a wake-up book, but he's going to tell us all about that in just a few minutes. So hang in there. You're listening to 3 Triple R. 3 Triple R. Hopefully on the phone, uh, let's just make sure we don't get any feedback. We have Julian Cribb, who is an author. Julian, are you there? I'm here, Shane. How are you? Good. Thanks so much for chatting to us today. We've received a copy of your new book entitled Surviving the 21st Century. Um, now, give us a bit of a, a rundown. This is, uh, this is a, a book essentially about all the threats that we're, we're facing and, and I assume what we can do about them. Give us a bit of a talk about uh, what, what this book is, is talking about. Well, I'm a science writer, Shane, and uh, I was meeting a lot of scientists and also a lot of grandparents, uh, like myself, and also a lot of young people who were, are increasingly concerned that we are in the end game of human history, that all of these various threats are coming together and that they're going to make a hell of a mess of us. So I'm meeting quite a lot of rational, well-educated or highly educated people uh, who are deeply disturbed by what's going on. Now, just 
running through the threats with you. First of all, there's mass extinction and the wipeout of the, of the ecology of the planet. Mm-hmm. Secondly, there's resource depletion, running out of critical things like, you know, soil and water and so on. Thirdly, there's weapons of mass destruction. Fourthly, there's climate change. Fifthly, there is universal poisoning from all the chemicals that we release. Uh, then there's food insecurity. Uh, there's population and urban expansion pandemic disease and a bunch of dangerous new technologies like artificial in- insemination, killer robots and what have you, which just simply aren't being controlled at the moment. Now, mm. the point is, each one of these these threats can be dealt with, but what nobody has looked at until now is the fact that they are all coming together at the one time and they feed into one another. And if we are going to solve them, we need to think of them all together. Yeah. Uh, one of the things I sort of always wonder here is whenever we talk about this stuff, it's very real in the here and now. Is, is it fair to say that at various times in our history we've always had this list? Uh, maybe the list now is a lot worse than normal, but it seems as though regardless of when I think back to, you know, in my, in my life, there's always been this list to some degree, whether it was, you know, nuclear proliferation or whatever else. Is that, is that fair to say? Well, let's talk about the whole of human history. Never has there been such a a confluence of major existential risks. Never Mm. in the whole of human history has there been such a coming together. Now, what has has changed? I mean, since I was born in 1950, right, when the population of the world was less than 3 billion. Mm. Population now 7.4. It's going to 10 or 11 billion in the the coming half century or so. So, uh, and those people are living from 5 to 10 times higher on the hog. They are using five to ten times more resources than, say, people uh, who are living a hundred years ago. Mm. So, so not only do we have a doubling and a tripling in the population having taken place, but we also have, you know, a five to tenfold increase in the amount of resources it takes to support each one of us. I mean, just to give you a simple example, every meal you eat destroys ten kilos of topsoil. Yeah, and it involves eight hundred liters of water. Mm. Now, that's a huge load. That's nearly a ton of water for one meal, right? Yeah. One hamburger. Yeah. So people have got no idea about this. They're not thinking about this. So what has changed is the absolute scale of of all of these things. So it's just that people are not aware of it. They're assuming we're still leading simple lives like we did in the nineteen fifties. So a lot of it, a lot of it, as you say, it, I mean, the population issue. I think that's where a lot of it comes down to. And we were talking about this uh, in the studio before we went on air. Actually, what what do you think the sort of carrying capacity of a planet like ours actually is? I mean, is it closer to around three or four billion? What do you what do you think the the capability is there in a sustainable yeah, yes, way? Uh, at, at, at the current, you know, at the Aussie living standard, mm. yes, it's about it's about three to four billion. Um, Paul Ehrlich argues it's close to two billion. That's the long term carrying capacity. So we're in a phase where we're going to be maxing out the planet's credit card over the next one hundred years in in order to get that population back down to a sustainable level where everybody has a good life. I mean, at the moment, we're making it with half the, half the planet in, living in, in abysmal poverty and so on. So, you know, um, it's not a desirable balance at the moment. But if everyone wants to live a good life, you're looking at a sustainable population of around about 3 billion at current rates of consumption. You know, that's, you know we're, we're talking about um, 100,000 tonnes of water per person. We're talking about 750 tonnes of metal per person and so on. So, you know, at those sorts of levels, if we lived simpler lives, as some people would like us to do, then obviously we can support a few more people. Yes. Fact, Hi, Julian. It's it's you and Richie here. So, I mean, I guess the 
standard of living, I think, is, is the really important issue as well that you just touched on because there was some recent work that came out in um, proceedings of National um, Academy of Sciences a couple of years ago which looked at the population issue, which, of course, is a big one, but they really made the point that e- even if we could slow the population down now... Um, <clears throat> it would still be a train wreck before we saw, I guess, the environment um, see, some, see the benefits it would need to. So what they really argued was that what we need to be doing as much, if not even more, than um, focusing on population size is standard of living. Now, <laughs> that's, of course, a really big ask, to ask people to shift uh, their standard of living, you know, so asking people to change their diet as an example, so stop eating so much beef and, and eat something else that's more sustainable. But that that seems to be the sort of arguments that we need to be having a lot more in, in the public sphere when we're not. Uh, I, I think that this is going to be a very hard argument to run you, and it's simply because people won't accept a lower standard of living. They don't accept a decline in health care. They don't accept a decline in education. They won't accept a decline in roads. So, you know, people will jack up and, and demand better services, whatever happens. I think that the sustainable approach, and if I could just illustrate, you mentioned meat. Well, look, in 15 years' time, a lot of meat is going to be produced directly from stem cells in large steel vats called bioreactors. So probably 20 or 30% of the world's food, meat supply, is going to be produced in cities uh, using minimal areas of land and water. Um, and, uh, and, and we will then be free to actually rewild up to um, half the planet, which is what E.O. Wilson has recommended. Uh, we can actually make agriculture much more sustainable by taking economic pressures off it and by eating these alternative foods which are coming online now. Um, so, and, and, that, and also, also especially by recycling. I mean, cities like Sydney throw all of their fresh water and their nutrients into the ocean. We should be capturing yep. both and reusing them in the, in the food system. And we, look, recycling everything. And uh, I believe there won't be any more mines after the 2070s because the women of the world have already decided to lower the population. I mean, they, they've, they've gone from 4.4 babies per woman down to 2.4, and they're heading for two, which is zero uh, population growth. Now, if they do that, there comes a point, probably in the 2060s, when we don't need any new metals, because all the metal we will ever need will be available in the waste stream, and it will be cheaper to get it out of the waste stream than dig a new hole in the ground. So, you know, if we recycle everything that we've got, Clever recycling of everything, including nutrients and water, is actually going to make this work. Yep. Julian, it's Chris KP here. Um, as, as you say, there's these, these critical, massive problems that seem to be sharing a, a nexus in time at the moment. In terms of communicating that to people or making them understand what their role in that or the solution is, are you better off focusing on any of those individually or is there some way you could focus on specific principles that underpin them all? No, it is very dangerous to focus on them individually because if you address only one of those problems, you tend to make other ones worse. For example, if we address only the issue of food security, the stock standard solution is to do more farming, burn more fossil fuels, create more droughts, have more food insecurity, etc. So you end up with these kind of circular... You you make climate change worse if you do more farming, basically. So we're not going to solve the food thing by doing more farming. Uh, We have to solve it by other more innovative methods. So the point is you have to look at at, at cross-cutting solutions that that deal with all ten of these threats at the same time. Uh, So you have to think about each threat in turn and, and, and work out how your solution is going to affect the outcome in that area. Up until now, we have been treating treating these things as if they were single, you know, problems to be dealt with. Unfortunately, you know, as I say, they're now combining 
to make each other worse. Like, the more we make climate change worse, the greater we add to the extinction and the collapse of the biosphere problem. Mm. Yeah. So, so if we don't fix climate change, you know, we're, we're, we're not going to save the species of the planet. Likewise, if we don't fix food, we're not going to save the, the species of the planet. So um, all of these things have to be addressed at the same time, basically, and, and it is not hard to do that. Mm. Julian, um, I suspect in your book you've uh, you've given some good ideas and and thoughts on on how people should go about this. Where, where can people get this? All good bookstores? Is it already available? Uh, it's available on Amazon.com and from the publisher Springer International. Mm-hmm. So you can either look up Springer on the internet, uh, or they can go to Amazon.com. And, all right. And either, either, uh, Springer has an e-copy. Uh, Amazon has the uh, the paperback. But l- let me just say about the advice that I give in it. What I have done, which is different from other books in this in this genre, is. Not only have I spoken about what the solutions are at the species and planetary level, I've also put in a section in each chapter what the individual person can do in their own lives to make a difference. Mm. A lot of people feel powerless when they're confronted with things like climate change or weapons of mass destruction or universal poisoning. Well, they're not powerless. They're actually increasingly powerful. And the whole, the conclusion of the book is that we are creating a new species of humans one that can actually think together in real time via the internet, via social media. Uh, you know, we are sharing knowledge and ideas and for action worldwide at, at phenomenal rates now. So we're actually, yeah. for the first time, we, we as a species have been able to share our thoughts. Yeah. And this is only going to grow. So, you know, we, we do have the power to solve this if we want to. That sounds good, Julian. Thanks so much for talking to us today. The title of the book is Surviving the 21st Century, Humanity's Ten Great Challenges and How We Can Overcome Them by Julian Cribb. Julian, uh, good luck with the book sales and hopefully it will have the impact that we all would like it to have. Great, thank you. You're listening to Einstein the Go-Go on 3 Blah. We're going to take a break, and in a moment we're going to come back and we're going to be talking about immunotherapy and cancer, which is a just a fascinating new area of uh, approach to dealing with this terrible problem and one that uh, we have two of the absolute experts in Melbourne coming into the studio in a moment. Three. Triple. You are listening to 3 R. Now, in the studio with us, we have Professor Dale Godfrey, who is the theme leader of immunology at the Doherty Institute and also in the Department of Microbiology and Immunology at the University of Melbourne. And we have Professor Grant MacArthur, who is the Associate Director of Cancer Research at the Peter McCallum Cancer Centre, a Senior Principal Research Fellow, a Consultant Medical Oncologist, Director of the Melanoma and Skin Service at the Peter McCallum Cancer Centre, and the Lorenzo Gali Chair in Melanoma and Skin Cancers at the University of Melbourne. Gentlemen, have I forgotten anything? <laughs> no, I think that is absolutely everything for me. At least, you know. I'm feeling a bit in it. Uh, you know, yeah, it's a short list, Dale. You know, I mean, but you have been on the show twice this year, so that's uh, that's got to be worth something. Um, Grant, I might start with you because uh, just before you came in the studio, I mentioned that we'd be talking about this idea of immunotherapy. Give us a bit of a rundown of, of just sort of the last 10 years of what's happened in immunotherapy because this is this great new hope, it seems, of cancer treatment, but it's not it's not good for everyone. No, that's right. But the ten, last 10 years have been absolutely amazing. Mm. So the big breakthrough has been to understand that there are molecules sitting on 
the T cells, uh, the key um, uh, cellular effector cells in the immune system that turn off those T cells. And so new treatments that reverse the break put the accelerator on of the T cells have been discovered and these are having remarkable results. Probably the most amazing thing to me and you know we'll hear from Dale just about how complex the immune system is but one molecule on the T cell called PD-1 is holding our immune system back from eradicating cancer in a significant mm. proportion of patients but not all which is the key point. Yeah. So, so when, when you have a patient, talk us through what happens when someone comes in. I know one of the things we have to get across, of course, is that cancer is not a single disease. It is many, many diseases in a way. But when a patient comes in, how do you determine whether they are ripe for immunotherapy as, as one of the ways to go in treating their cancer? So I would say at the moment we're still relatively naive and not very sophisticated because we do it by cancer type. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we know if you've got melanoma, for example, and actually we just had some media this week around the footballer mm-hmm. Jared Roughhead who's had yeah. a complete response to this treatment. So because he had melanoma, we know that for melanoma that has metastasized or spread, that immune therapies can be highly effective. Similarly, we know if you've got bowel cancer that's spread, that immune therapies, unless it's one rare subset are not effective but that's Mm. not very sophisticated you know Mm. what i would like dale to be able to tell me is is there a way of picking not so much based on where the cancer started who's going to respond and who's not and start to really get to a mechanism so that we can broaden the value of these therapies for more patients now now dale there's there's one molecule i mean you know, Helen's going to take you guys. You know, <laughs> not to put the pressure on, but but we we all have an immune system that's essentially evolved in in the same way. Why is it that some of us can use this as a, as a methodology for treatment, and for some it just doesn't work? Well, yeah. So uh, it, we in immunology know that the immune system is incredibly complex. Mm. We're, we're actually still in the process of discovering the cells that are involved in the immune system and the molecules that these cells express. So. This one molecule, there's a couple of molecules that are being used for immunotherapy and that's two out of hundreds of potential molecules that could be used. And these vary between individual patients with cancer and also between cancer types. So we, we really still have a, 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 at least a, only a, a, a basic understanding of how the immune system responds to cancer mm. and, and then trying to use immunotherapy is a bit like trying to fly a plane when you only know half what the controls do. Right. So so it's it's fantastic what's happening but there's a hell of a long way that we can go to improve on it to make immunotherapy safer and more effective. Yeah. In terms of the therapies themselves, um, Grant, how do they compare to other therapies? Obviously surgery is something that happens on on a day. Chemotherapy I suspect is weeks or, or months. I mean what, what's what's the scenario with immunotherapy is it fast or is it something that takes a long time to kick in yeah now that's a great question because traditionally we thought you had to generate an immune response that takes time you know when we vaccinate a child for um, uh, with their vaccines you know you give them repeatedly and it takes Mm. many months to build up an immune response so we thought that's what happened with cancer but actually it turns out to be far more promising for patients because this PD-1, it's got a molecule on the cancer uh, called PD-L1 that's basically a wall that's just sitting there. It's turning off the T cells. You, If you uh, inhibit that molecular interaction, bang, 
those T cells are now turned on suddenly because, in fact, there's pre-existing immune responses. So the immune system has, or, or the, the cancer has already vaccinated the immune system, which is ready to go. So, wow, what a surprise that was. We didn't think that would happen, mm. but it's fantastic because some patients will respond within a week or two to these treatments. You know, their cancers just start to melt away. Quite amazing. That actually leads into my question. Um, I'm interested in whether or not you have to be treatment naive to be able to do the immunotherapy. So if you've previously done chemotherapy, for example, mm. does that affect that, you know, cancer? triggering these T-cells in that way? Yeah, the evidence uh, to date is is still emerging, but uh, there's a general trend that maybe immune treatments work better if you're naive because uh, there's a thing called immune senescence, which, you know, Dale might be able to expand on, but chemo may actually damage the immune system somewhat. It may also, in some instances, help kill cells, which gets the immune response mm. going, so we have to sort of understand that better. But there's a trend, not always in every cancer, but there's a trend towards previous treatment being a bit worse than if you give it up front. So in melanoma now, we're very keen to give it up front. If you've got a... Um, if, you, if you undertake some sort of um, uh, immune treatment... Am I right in assuming that that, that lasts forever? So it may, it may treat the cancer and it may wipe it out or not, but mm. either way, is that capacity of my immune system still able to, the, to yeah. turn that on whenever? Yeah, great question. So the answer is yes and no, you know, as often in biology, right? It's <laughs> complex course, stuff. You know, it's, it's both ways. So, uh, of course, a great characteristic of the immune system is memory. You mm. know, that's why, you know, I just got some vaccination results back this week myself and I see that my rubella from, you know, when I was a youngster, yeah. I've still got antibodies, right? decades later so wow. there's immunity okay so of oh, those memory that in the immune system so so um that can happen with cancer so with some instances you induce an immune response and then that lasts for years but other times it stops and we've got to understand why because you know that's what we need to extend these treatments to more patients mm. dale when we consider some of the more troublesome cancers i mean take um, leukemia for example where you know often the first run of chemo does very well puts people completely into remission but when they go back for a second low that doesn't seem to work uh, have we had any success in sort of under well, understanding that biology and i know there's some, been some recent work uh, particularly out at wehi that sort of helped with that but do we know how those sorts of cancers that are really problematic for us how they're responding to immunotherapy are they ones that uh, are, you know showing promise or are they still the hard ones we can't crack so, so yes these therapies are also showing uh, promising responses with some of the immunotherapies like PD-1 blockade, which Grant mentioned, but there's another mm. type of immunotherapy that's also really exciting, and that's where you take T-cells and the lymphocytes out of the patient and you expand them up in a flask, and you can even genetically engineer them with receptors that will allow them to go back and, and target and kill those tumours. Mm. And, and those, um, those therapies, which are called chimeric antigen receptor T-cell therapies, are showing incredible promise. There were some results that just came out in the last couple of weeks with uh, chronic lymphocytic leukaemia, where 15 out of 17 patients who had failed all other therapies and all the cancers were cleared from their bone marrow through this new T-cell transfer therapy. So there's, there's several different approaches with immunotherapy, and they're mm. all creating really exciting results that suggest that at least the majority of different cancer types will ultimately be treatable with immunotherapy. Yeah. It, it must be, I mean, Grant, when you see people coming through the clinic, it must be a, a, an amazing scenario where, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but 
you would have you'd have had people in the past where as soon as the word spread or metastasize comes into the equation, the kind of the sort of conversation you would have had would have been of one type. It's pretty bad. Whereas with this type of therapy, am I right in saying that that doesn't quite matter anymore, or, or at least it matters a lot less than it did before? Is that the transition we're making? Yeah, look, it's, it is an amazing transformation. The conversation with a patient has completely changed. Mm. We, we can't say we're curing people yet because we're very conservative to use that word. Uh, we need decades of follow-up and before we're really going to know, you know, if patients are being cured. But I do say to people, my intent is for you to have long-term disease control. Yep. They're the words I use. And, and you know, that's not false hope. That's not just getting people up to help them out psychologically. That's what the data's showing that with the first of these immune checkpoints, CTLA-4, we now have people alive and well more than 10 years after they received their first treatment. Yeah. Now, not that they didn't love the old building you guys had, but how's, how's the... <laughs> how's the have they bulldozed that yet? No. Um, how, how's the new facility, the VCCC? I mean, this is literally the the biggest and brand newest and most most expensive, should I say, um, medical building of its type in the country, probably, I suspect. Yeah, you know, yeah. actually, I think... I actually believe this is the best uh, cancer centre building in the world it's right. amazing it's a fantastic facility for patients but i tell you what i'm really excited about and that's the collaborative opportunities of bringing mm. institutions together into this building and to move the peter mac up into the university precinct in parkville yeah. that's what's really exciting you know dale's developing you know a network of uh, collaborators to really accelerate the discovery and the application for patients of immune therapies mm. now dale we want to talk about that before we let you go the um the Melbourne Immunotherapy Network. Presumably, this is bringing you know people like yourself who understand the immune system, and and people like Grant who have, have dedicated their lives to eradicating cancer together and bringing all of that mix um, into into the one place. Now, what, what's the what's the goal, and, and where's the network at? What's, what's well, yeah. The... So we, Melbourne has some of the world's leading immunologists and some of the world's leading uh, oncologists and mm. other clinicians, and and while they they talk sometimes with each other, they often move in different circles and. So a group of us from um, Doherty Institute and the Peter Mac and Wee High and Royal Melbourne Hospital, Melbourne Uni, Olivia Newton-John Centre, St Vincent's and Monash all together have sort of formed this Melbourne Immunotherapy Network. It's early days. We had our first symposium a couple of weeks ago and that was a fantastic turnout. We had 170 attendees that mm. included clinicians and, and scientists and talked about the immunotherapy research that the various partners are doing. Um, we've already got one potential collaboration that spun out of that, but going forward we hope that we'll have a regular series of events, uh, a symposium in Melbourne once a year and a weekend retreat where we can get clinicians and immunologists all together to um, spend you know some time drinking wine and uh, chatting about the immunotherapy research that's going on. And uh, plus, you know, public forums is another goal we have to t tell the public about what's going on. Mm -hmm. Well, gentlemen, thanks so much for coming in today and talking to us about this. I mean, we, we've had a lot of discussions over the year on immunotherapy as a, as a new technique. And unfortunately, today we don't have time to talk more broadly about the immune system and the other issues that are there. But we we have uh, discussed that in the past. Good luck with this ongoing work. It is it is thrilling to see that just to imagine where we might be with this within about a decade because I think that's where um, the, the VCCC will be more of a recovery centre than you know what it is today and, and that, that will be a great outcome for, for so many people. So well done and keep up the good work. Thank, Thank you. you. Professor Grant MacArthur and 
Professor Dale Godfrey, and I'm not going to read out the extensive list of amazing um, roles that they both play, but suffice it to say they're from the Peter McCallum Cancer Centre and the University of Melbourne and the Doherty Institute. We're going to take a short, very short break, folks, and we'll be back in just a moment with our final two guests for the year who will be talking about the Science Gallery Melbourne, which will be opening up relatively soon. Three. Triple. We have our final two guests in the studio for 2016. That's Rose Hiscock, who is the director of the Science Gallery in Melbourne, and Ryan Jeffries, who is the creative director of the Season of Blood, which is their first big exhibition. Rose, Ryan, welcome to Triple R. Thank you. Thank you. Now, uh, you are our 124th and 125th guest for today. I feel tired just saying it. Fantastic. <laughs> now, um, first of all, uh, I think, uh, Rose, I might start with you because the, the Science Gallery is something that uh, is just hitting the shores of Australia, but this has been around for a little while now in the world. Give us a bit of a rundown of what's happened, especially in Ireland and so forth, in the establishment of these programs. Yeah, um, so, so Science Galleries, it's an international network of galleries, uh, established in 2008 in Dublin at mm. Trinity College Dublin and they hit on what turned out to be a really fantastic formula which is the combination of art, science uh, university uh, but at that sort of cutting the, the, the edge between academia and the public so mm. to set up a gallery space that could weave in um, research from the university but also blend fantastic ideas, knowledge and um, projects from outside as well so it's a physical gallery space uh mm-hmm. it's at it's at the border of uh, trinity college between the university and the street mm-hmm. uh and it's been phenomenally successful and so they realized they're onto this really amazing um organization and so put it out to the world basically and said well why not uh, replicate this in other other um countries of course there's a network of, of universities and so there'll be in the in the longer run eight galleries built around the world uh, a gallery currently in development in london one in development in uh, bangalore they're going to announce another one next week i can't still let thunder and say where it is <laughs> but <laughs> and and we're bringing it into melbourne yeah and in terms of the uh, determination of sites you know so there's a few around i mean what what goes into that i mean can can any location just say well we're going to start up a science gallery or is there a you know is this like the olympics you know is there a, is there a committee that so i mean how do you go about determining where they would be well it's slightly different no bribery involved as far, okay. as, as, far as i understand okay so, you, you said I it think. you said it yeah. um so essentially uh the broad plan is one on each continent right. um and the universities in in australia bid and uh, mm. uh, the university of melbourne was successful in the bid it, it, Really, the, to, to get it up, we had to show that it was a city that could embrace knowledge and ideas, uh, that we had the infrastructure behind us, and then we will build the gallery as part of an, a new innovation precinct that the university is undertaking at the moment. Mm. Take that, Sydney. So, so aside from where it's located, how do you decide what topics? I mean, there's so much to cover, right, in the scientific world about all these issues we want to discuss and communicate better to society. So how do you go about deciding we're going to do something on this and something on that and how, how, what's the process there? So this is the spectacular part, okay? So so I've been throughout my career involved uh, in, in the museum world. I ran the Powerhouse Museum before uh, coming coming home to Melbourne. And on the whole... 
and there'll be people out here who will dispute this, but on the whole, uh, galleries and, and museums tend to be fairly top-down in terms of their decision-making around content. Mm. So you have a collection, you have curatorial strength, you have directors, and, and based on that, determine what might uh, uh, be exhibited. In the science gallery world, it's quite the opposite. It's very bottom-up. So we put together a think tank of great minds. We call them the Leonardos. Every And it's one of the things that every uh, gallery node has. So we invite scientists, artists, young people, designers, architects into into talk to us a couple of times a year. Based on that, we decide what topics we'll cover. And then we put that out into the public domain, into an open call. And we we literally find out what washes up in terms of great ideas and then we develop that into our exhibitions. So it's very much um, uh, driven by uh, the, the sort of the heartbeat of what's topical. So, Ryan, that's a great segue into somehow our population have all said we want blood. Not necessarily from you, but <laughs> but this this will be the first. Uh, you're the creative de- director of the um, of the the new centre, and and the first thing you're doing is on blood. Tell us about the exhibition. That's right. So blood is such an exciting theme to begin with, and uh, the the origin of of how we've come up with the the theme blood is that it was actually a season that was run in Science Gallery Dublin a couple of years ago. So we are actually going to simultaneously uh, do the season of blood with Science Gallery London as well. So this will be a first for the the Science Gallery network, and so we'll be taking a core component of the original exhibition. But both Melbourne and London are going through the open core process as well. So we're actually going to build upon the original exhibition and we're currently seeking new submissions. So our open call is live now. Uh, so we're encouraging anyone really with a, a great idea uh, around the theme of blood uh, to submit uh, work. Uh, so this could be scientists, engineers, designers, artists, and we're really about hybrid thinking. So we want people... Uh, to really push boundaries uh, w- with this theme and uh, be, be really interactive uh, in their approach. So in terms of the space that you have, I mean, is that a restriction for the artists? Can they go really big? I mean, obviously blood, you probably don't want to go too much of it. But you know, what sort of art can they do? Uh, so the possibilities are certainly endless and at the moment because we don't actually have the the new science gallery building we're going to be using a range of uh, pop-up locations uh, around campus and also uh, within the the CBD so during the selection process we'll certainly be taking that into account of where these uh, works could fit so possibilities are certainly endless mm. so i see in the information you you've sent through you're targeting sort of the 15 to 25 year olds i mean when someone comes into one of these exhibitions i mean we, we already we have museums everywhere you know there's in you know this better than, than most rest. so and and they have an educational component which is un, undisputable what is the goal out of something like an exhibition on blood i mean what what do you want a and and the difference between a 15 and 25 year old is not 10 years it's 300 yes. um yes. you know what yeah. you know i'm not sure how you shoot for that group and what what you want them to walk out with mm. in terms of education experience i mean what's what's the um 
what's the trigger there? What are you going, going for? So really one of the core focuses is around STEM. Uh, so what we're, we're promoting is really, uh, STEM to STEAM. So adding arts into the, the mix of, uh, science, technology, engineering and, and maths. And so it really is just encouraging people, uh, to be excited about these, uh, disciplines. I guess looking ahead, uh, into jobs of the future, there's going to be more and more demand on the STEM subjects. So we're really wanting to encourage this group uh, to be part of that. And all of you guys and, 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 and mm. women on the panel would know that, you know, when there's a moment when you're taken to an exhibition as a young person, whether it's, or, or t- whether it's your first music concert or into a, into a lab or into a museum and some light is turned on, you, you're like, that is fantastic. I want that. And so we, we want to make sure that that uh, pathway for young adults, for teenagers who tend to drop out of visiting uh, museums and galleries with their families, they, 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 they stay as young kids and then later in life. So we want to keep that chain linked up the whole way through. So we see ourselves as a very, uh, very, very complementary to the other cultural offerings in, in Melbourne uh, and certainly not competitive. It's like, well, let's, let's all get together and, and deliver something great. And I have to say, you know, having, having worked in Sydney, um, Melbourne is very, very collaborative in the way it works. So we do link up our, our venues in a really nice way. Mm. When we talk about the, uh, what's in the exhibition and so forth and these goals, is, is the art side of it just the medium or is that part of you know, when we're trying to expose people and get them you know look for that spark and interest is that in the arts as well or is or are we just using that as the medium of sort of transfer of information here it's a combination of both and and so really we are about hybrid thinking and being really multidisciplinary uh, where where possible so the core science message is, is really important but so is being creative around that mm. and when we think about the big problems we're facing societally you know whether it's climate change um, migration population uh, renewable energies you know we really need to use an entire brain to mm. deal with those yeah, yeah. issues you know Absolutely. we can't just silo out parts of it and say, oh, let's let's just look at it from one perspective. So we're really encouraging, as Ryan says, a hybrid a hybrid approach yeah. to thinking. Yeah, Rose, can you give us a couple of examples from as you as you've said, this is an existing exhibit that's you know going on around the world. I mean, are there a couple of items you can describe for us to give people an idea of the sort of material you're you're trying to get in, or, or maybe Ryan, you might be better to do that one. Uh, well, I guess we we can't give away too much at, at this point, but I will uh, touch on one sub theme that we will be exploring and that is blood and food and it does make everyone cringe when when you think about that combination uh but uh through some of my research recently uh i've realized that the serum within blood is actually very similar to egg white and so you can actually make Mm. blood meringues and so we will have an experimental uh component and we'll be certainly encouraging people to trial and uh eat some blood foods Nice. So, so that was going to be my last question, actually, just how interactive this will be. I mean, this, it's called a gallery, but presumably this is a very interactive type of model that you're putting forward. Yes. Immersive is probably the best way to describe it. So, um, 
you will definitely uh, be part of the part of the experience, as well as um, you know we we want to start conversations. So we'll mm. use um, lo- lots and lots of different methods for for communicating, whether it's an immersive exhibit or someone just having a chat about about the science behind something. Yeah, look, it sounds great. And the building will be ready in twenty twenty to open. Till then, we have the pop up galleries. Rose Hiscock and Ryan Jeffries, thanks so much for chatting to us, and good luck with this adventure into science communication. We've been doing it here for a while. It's a it's an uphill battle, but it's a worthwhile one. So, <laughs> people are great. Have fun. Thanks, and thanks that, for the honour for being the last guest of the year. Yeah, we'll, we'll kind of fall off our chairs in a moment. When <laughs> <laughs> um, folks, we're pretty much at the end of the show for today. Uh, we will be back with our final show next week. We'll be talking about all of our favourite things with regards to the science that we've seen throughout the year. Um, we'll have one of our best guests back on too, as uh, you know, potentially a member of the team. Actually, things are going well there. This has been a podcast from Three Triple R, one hundred two point seven FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.